Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 486. Welcome in. Uh, this very well could be the last episode I record in this room. Uh, I am moving in two days. I'm going to try to pump one more episode out. I'll probably record it and then release it. Like, I'll schedule it to upload while I'm I'm moving, actually. Uh, so if I have enough time, you'll see one more episode in this room. But, hey, if it's up in the air, so say goodbye now. This background is going to be gone soon. Some of you will hate that. Some of you will love that. Um, I don't know. Life's exciting. I'm excited for new stuff. Let's jump into some sports news today. Um, so I, I'm late to this topic, but I wanted to talk about it because I think I've got a specific angle here. It's a nuanced conversation. I certainly cannot. Um, I, I don't feel confident I can break it down. It's part of why I've taken so long as I've been sitting on it. Like, how do I come at this topic? So there was recently beef between Alabama head coach Nick Saban and Texas A&M's head coach Jimbo Fisher. It's a complicated, nuanced topic, and I'm going to do my best to explain it, although as I break it down, really what I want you to think about is that Texas A&M will play Alabama on October 8th, and this whole drama is interesting to me because it feels like it's maybe, maybe deepening is the word. There is a growing rivalry between Alabama and Texas A&M. I don't know if you would call it a rivalry currently, but there's something brewing between these two schools, and I love it, and I think it's the beginning of something really, really special, a fun, true rivalry. And I, I just I think that's the context I want to frame this drama with, which is that, hey, these two teams are, are growing and building in a kind of a, maybe a disdain for each other. There's a clear they don't like each other. So what happened was Nick Saban, Alabama's head coach, came out and accused Texas A&M of buying, quote, every player of their number one recruiting class. He was at some speaking event, and I think, honestly, this happened off the cuff. I'm not sure how rehearsed or planned it was. He said that Texas A&M used a coalition fund, which is a bunch of money put together by boosters, and given to the players as NIL money, national, or sorry, name, image, likeness, brand deals. You give it to a recruit, they choose your college. Now, Texas A&M had the number one ranked recruiting class. Alabama had the number two ranked recruiting class. Nick Saban called that model, the coalition with boosters, unsustainable and said it could cause problems in their locker room. What happens when one guy's paid way more than another? And do you, how do you balance all that out? Now, before we go any further down this road talking about what the, the can of worms really that Nick Saban opened up. I got to say, I find myself very pro player. I really don't care how colleges or recruiting classes get affected because I want to see young men get paid for their work. And I, I'm really happy to see, I don't really care. Hey, a guy makes a lot of money for playing football. I, I go, woo, that's awesome. Win for a man, like win for a young man. That's cool to me. Um, also, it's a bit funny from really both perspectives, whether you're talking about Jimbo Fisher or Nick Saban, they're both arguing about how recruiting has you know, got money influencing how players are recruited. And money has been used to recruit players for years. It was often just more indirect. Now, there were people that got paid under the table directly, like the way Reggie Bush was paid at USC, for example. 
But also, like, let's not ignore the fact that money's been a massive factor in recruiting forever. Like, teams with the biggest and best facilities often got better players. You get better facilities, you win more. It's a snowball effect. And a team like, I don't know, Florida Atlantic that doesn't have the money behind it is never going to compete with a team like Alabama. Money's always been a part of recruiting since forever. And it's a little bit funny to hear, like, you're using money for recruiting. It's like, so are you. Ah, I don't know. Now, here is how Texas A&M head coach Jimbo Fisher responded. He called Nick Saban. He got very defensive. He called Nick Saban despicable for calling out 17-year-olds. He said that he is losing, so he's taking shots and lashing out at other people. It is kind of true. Alabama just lost the national title to Georgia, coached by a former Nick Saban assistant coach, Kirby Smart. Now, Texas A&M got a better recruiting class than Alabama. Remember, they are coached by Jimbo Fisher, who was once a assistant to Nick Saban at LSU. And Jimbo Fisher, man, he gave a, a couple of interesting quotes. He encouraged people to look into Nick Saban's past. Apparently, by the way, Nick Saban tried to call Jimbo Fisher. Jimbo said he didn't answer. Nick Saban also confirmed that. Um, Jimbo had a couple of good lines, man. He said, we're done. Like, I'm done with Nick Saban. And then he very sarcastically goes, greatest ever, huh? He shows you who he is. When you've got all the advantages, it's easy. Like, he was, you know, the czar of college football. We cheered him like a god. Like, he was very much like, he was heated, man. He was upset. And there's a lot of, um, I, I, it felt like animosity and disdain towards Nick Saban. And they are competitors, but there is no love lost between them at all. And Nick Saban, it's funny, actually came out and apologized. He said he never should have singled anyone out. I've heard a lot of, quote, you know, it's a complicated topic. People are saying he apologized because of, uh, Coach Prime at Jackson State. I, I don't know, man. I, I really, it's hard to tell. Um, again, here's what I, the reason why I, I find this story interesting, this drama between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher, is to remind you that they play each other October 8th. They play each other every year. The game is in Alabama this year. I cannot wait. Like, I, I love this. This makes me more excited for their game. And there's a lot more to this story that I don't care about. The, the angle I take here is that this building, budding, growing rivalry between Texas A&M is, is coming together. And remember, Alabama had one loss last year. They, won, they, they got to a national title. They lost to Georgia. They had one loss during the regular season. They lost to Texas A&M. Basically the same, you know, they, they play each other October 8 this year. Last year they played on October 9. And Texas A&M beat Alabama. So I, I love the growing, building rivalry between these two teams. And uh, I just, I, I live for this stuff, man. This, this true, honest dislike for each other, animosity, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think it's good for the sport. It makes me more excited to watch them play each other. And that's where I'm coming at it. I, I can't break down the pay structure of paying college athletes. I, at a surface level, college athletes get paid. There are consequences that are... It's a whole, I mean, it's a snowball effect, right? I'm here for the consequences because I like seeing young men get paid. But I like this arguing between coach and coach and this growing rivalry between Texas A&M and Alabama. By the way, the NCAA made a ruling. You no longer need to have divisions for a conference to have a conference championship game. And immediately, bam, just like that, 
the Pac-12 announced that as of this fall, there will be no more divisions in the Pac-12, no more North and South. The two teams of the highest winning percentages will play each other in the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, the Mountain West immediately followed suit as well. It seems like something is going to really cascade across college football. Now, here's what I, I love and what I think of here. I, I grew up in the Northwest. I'm supposed to be a Pac-12 fan, and certainly I've got a lot of friends in the Pac-12 who coach and play and uh, friends that are fans of all those teams. I, I'm not as well connected in the SEC, but as a fan of football, I adore and I love, I love SEC football. I think it's incredible. And if the SEC joins the Pac-12 and makes that change, removing divisions, what's possible, and it, it is possible that when they expand and add Oklahoma and Texas, they could make a change like that. If they remove divisions, we could potentially get a Texas A&M against Alabama game in the SEC title game. That sounds awesome. It's usually George, Alabama. It probably it would have been last year, too, right? Like they I, I don't know. It's just interesting to see like we could see a new division, um, meaning new dividing lines and in, in, in fact, or removal of dividing lines in college football. And hopefully the SEC. I just want the two best teams in the SEC to play each other. And then see what happens. That sounds fun to me. I mean, we could also get Alabama-Auburn if Auburn was really good or whatever. I mean, I, the, the opportunities here are boundless. And I really, really like the thought of the SEC saying, no more divisions. The two best teams are going to play each other for the SEC title. And we'll figure it out from there. I love that idea. And uh, that is what I want to happen in the SEC. All right. Um, Second-year quarterback. And last year's number three overall pick, Trey Lance, is expected to be the 49ers starting quarterback this fall. Apparently, I didn't realize this, he had an injury with uh, the index finger on his throwing hand last year, his right pointer finger. He was hurt. It impacted his ability to throw the football. Had no idea. It makes, it makes sense, I guess, when you go back and watch film, but like I, I just didn't, didn't know at all he was struggling with that. That finger, man, your index finger is critical for throwing a football. Like That's the last finger to touch the football if you're throwing the ball right, in my opinion. I, I mean, I don't know how else you would do it. it maybe, maybe, maybe like your middle finger in some scenario. I mean, if your finger's hurt, that's what you usually do. But you need these two fingers for shooting a basketball and for throwing a football and a lot of other stuff, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, my God, I can't believe I said that on the show. Um, so and it, my point is that Trey Lance is getting back to 100% apparently. I didn't know he was hurt. And that just gives me even more excitement for this fall. I think Trey Lance is getting ready to have, man, a, a breakout season in the NFL. I think people are going to realize, oh, my gosh, Trey Lance is really talented. He's got a massive arm. He's making good decisions. Remember, he's going to be playing with a really talented football team, throwing the ball to George Kittle, maybe Debo Samuel, running the ball well. they got a good defense. He's had time to sit. The team around him is good. I, I just think that we are poised for a massive breakout season for the 49ers young quarterback, Trey Lance. Also, he's got Brian Greasy, a former NFL quarterback, the former Monday Night Football broadcaster as his quarterback coach. I think they're going to have a fun relationship and can grow together and build a cool relationship. I just, man, I, I can't say enough. I'm really excited for Trey Lance and this story. Um, it's noteworthy because I didn't know he was hurt. It makes you wonder. You look back at like how much did that affect a lot of the little times he played, this and that, and I just think, man, we're going to see a guy, Trey Lance, have a really big, impressive year this year. And he's going to come out of nowhere. A lot of people aren't going to expect it. And he's going to be awesome, awesome, awesome this fall. Okay, we got some Steelers news. 
The Pittsburgh Steelers have hired a new general manager. They are promoting Omar Khan from within. He's an internal hire. Uh, he's been with the team for 21 years. He worked previously in the football operations department. So the Steelers got a new GM. Then there's been some shuffling. Um, one guy from the front office is leaving Southwest Pennsylvania for Southeast Pennsylvania. Uh, Brandon Hunt is leaving the Steelers to go to Philly. Brandon Hunt uh, was the Steelers pro scouting coordinator, meaning he evaluates players at the NFL level on other NFL teams and scouts for free agency and making trades. He's a really good talent evaluator. That's a good hire for Philly. At the same time, Andy Weidel, uh, Weidel, it could be German pronunciation. I've never, I've, I've only ever read his name. But I've never heard it. Andrew Weidel, Andrew Weidel. Uh, he is leaving Philly for Pittsburgh. He was the Eagles vice president of player personnel. He is now going to be the assistant GM in Pittsburgh. Honestly, like, you know what this tells me? Pennsylvania must be cool. Like, people are moving within Pennsylvania. No one wants to leave the state. I, I am like, I, I want to see it. I think it's, like, foresty and green and pretty. I'm, I'm really interested in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm going to go there for the first time in the next year, and I, I'm like, I, you know, I, I'm very excited. What am I going to find? What's Philadelphia like? What's Pittsburgh like? What is northern Pennsylvania like? What is Erie? I think Erie is on. I think they border one of the Great Lakes. I'm, I'm really interested in Pennsylvania. If you live there, hit me up. I'd love to come. I'd love to meet you. Let's go football around. I'll, I'll make you some steak or something. Uh, that'd be cool to me. So um, I don't know. I find that fascinating. People moving back and forth within Pennsylvania. And uh, look at that. The Steelers finally got a new GM, Omar Khan. And we're doing some water. This will be a fun topic, I think. You'll either enjoy it or you won't. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm excited for it. I want to run through each division in the NFC. Uh, this episode will be part one of a two-part series. Today we're doing the NFC tomorrow. Next episode, whenever we get it out, uh, I am, I mean, like, it's very well possible. I'm, I'm moving in two days. <laughs> tomorrow I'm going to pack up all my stuff and tear down my studio. If I can't get it done by tonight, it'll be like a significant like wait before we get to the next episode. But today I want to explain who I believe is the best team in every division in the NFC. I think it's a fun exercise. What it, I think this does for me is kind of set our expectation level. Uh, in the next couple months, we have – so we'll do this, kind of setting an expectation level, a, a baseline. Then we're going to watch a lot of film in the next month and a half or so. Uh, do a lot of film analysis videos, break down quarterbacks. I'm, I'm really excited for that. Do evaluate and do what I love doing the most. Um, then we're going to do, after about a month and a half of film analysis videos, we're going to start getting into preseason predictions. And so this is the very beginning of a long process of setting our expectation, then evaluating, then predicting, then the season's going to start. So I'm really excited. Um, now that all the offseason moves are basically done, we're getting ready for preseason predictions, I'm going to tell you who I think is the best team in every division. Feel free to disagree. Write in. Let me know what you think and who you think is the best team in every division. And, and tell me why. Don't just say, Washington Commanders are amazing. And don't, like, explain why. Like, I, I would love to hear a detailed reason from you. But if you're just going to yell at me, I mean, do that too. It helps SEO. It gets me more, uh, more impressions on YouTube. But, like, come on, man. Like, I'd love to hear a, a thought-out reason why you think I'm wrong. Let's start with the NFC West. Who is the best team in the NFC West? Well, it's not Seattle, that's for sure. Uh, the Seattle Seahawks are rebuilding. There's a lot of question marks. One of their biggest ones is their young quarterback, Drew Locke. I mean, 
there, there's Drew Locke has got to prove himself this fall. And like, I'm not trying to tear down Seattle, but even Seattle, I, I, I hope their fan base isn't delusional and also can understand, like, you guys are not the best team in your division at all. So we'll see. Seattle, uh, they're out of the running. Now, the 49ers are really good. They were a playoff team last year. I expect that their second-year quarterback, Trey Lance, is going to have a breakout season, make a name for himself, really impress a lot of people. I'm excited for that. Uh, the 49ers have a lot of talent. they got a good offensive line. They've got a tight end, George Kittle, who I think is the best in the NFL. He can catch passes, run after the catch. He can block at a high level. A lot of these tight ends that get praise in the NFL are good receivers. The, Kyle Pitts, by the way, great receiving tight end. He can't block. George Kittle can block his tail off. I love it. And that's something that the fact that he can do both, to me, makes him the best tight end in the NFL. Travis Kelsey is somewhere behind him uh, very closely. Debo Samuel is a stud. If he plays, that'd be a big, obvious uh, key factor in the 49ers offense. And then the 49ers have a terrifying defensive line as well. Like, the 49ers are a really good football team. I think they're probably a, a playoff team, if not a borderline playoff team. Now, the Arizona Cardinals, I just don't trust them. They went 11-6 and six last year. But in big moments when it mattered most, Arizona fell flat. I don't trust them. They've got drama with Kyler Murray. Uh, they do have a lot of talent, though. I thought last year was a year for Arizona. I was like, man, they, and maybe, maybe last year was a year of building, and this year is their year. But they've got a lot of big names. I'm excited for them. They've got talent. Can they put it together? I, I think at this point, honestly, I don't trust their leadership, whether it's Kyler Murray or Cliff Kingsbury. The people at the top in Arizona, I'm very skeptical of and not trusting of. I'm also curious how they handled the DeAndre Hopkins suspension. Now, the best team in the NFC West is still the LA Rams. I'm not just saying that because they are the defending Super Bowl champions. In fact, I, I will even say, I think Arizona and the 49ers closed the gap a bit and are in an even better position to challenge the Rams and their division this year. I think the 49ers and Cardinals got a little bit better. I think the Rams got a little bit worse. I still think the Rams find themselves out ahead in that division, though. The Rams lost a few players. The two biggest ones that come to mind are Andrew Whitworth, their left tackle, and pass rusher Vaughn Miller. Now, at the end of the day, though, L.A. still has the same core of players. you got Matthew Stafford at quarterback, Cooper Cup at receiver, Aaron Donald on the defensive line, Jalen Ramsey at corner. Plus, they added, you know, Bobby Wagner at linebacker. They also added a receiver, Allen Robinson from Chicago, who that move, the Allen Robinson signing and move has been massively, massively underrated. Nobody's paying attention to that. Allen Robinson is a stud receiver who's finally getting a really good quarterback, Matthew Stafford, and a good system to play in. I, I think people are not paying enough attention to that move. And by the way, they might get Odell Beckham Jr. back as well. I think San Francisco and Arizona are going to challenge L.A. It's not a, a shoe-in, easy victory for the Rams, but I still think overall the Rams are the best team in the NFC West. How about up north? Who is the best team in the NFC North? Well, it's not the Chicago Bears. They are a... I don't want to call them a mess. That feels a bit harsh, but they're rebuilding. They've got a new coach. They are probably the worst team in that division. The... All eyes are going to be on the Bears' second-year quarterback, Justin Fields. They're nowhere near their best team in this division. Now, the Minnesota Vikings, I'm really excited. They've got a new head coach, Kevin O'Connell. I want to see. I think he can get the most out of Kirk Cousins and that offense in Minnesota. And it's a 
regime change I've been waiting for for a long time in Minnesota where I think their best players are on offense and they need a coach that can get the most out of that. Their defense is aging. They've got a couple of questions on offense with their offensive line. Uh, we'll see. I, I remain hesitant to buy into Minnesota, but we'll see. Now, the Detroit Lions are not the best team in that division, but they're making progress. I love their head coach, Dan Campbell. Uh, they've got they got two good players in the first round of the NFL draft. I think they're headed in a good direction. I'm so thankful they decided to continue to build their roster around Jared Goff. Um, I'm honestly hopeful about Detroit, but let's be clear. Green Bay is still the king of the north. Green Bay is the best team in this division. They've got quarterback Aaron Rodgers, one of the best in the NFL. They've got an established head coach, Matt LaFleur, a good offensive line, a good running game. They drafted defense. They made their defense, which I thought was already pretty solid, even better. Um, special teams was a big problem last year in Green Bay, and they made a really underrated hire. They hired Rich Basaccia to be their special teams coordinator. He was the interim head coach last year in Vegas when John Gruden got fired. He led the Raiders to the playoffs. Like He is a, I think, a little bit overqualified guy to be a special teams coordinator. He is an amazing special teams coach, and uh, he solved a big problem for Green Bay. That's a great, great hire for the Green Bay Packers. They also drafted a talented big receiver, Christian Watson, 6'5". I can't wait to see what he can do with Aaron Rodgers, throwing him the ball vertically. They're going to run the ball well, play good defense, be hopefully really, really efficient on special teams. I think that that is going to allow them time to win and grow early. If they're struggling in the passing game early on, I don't think they will be. They've got Aaron but let's say it takes Christian Watson a couple weeks to get settled in. They can run the ball well and play good defense, be efficient on special teams, and still win. So, man, I just, to me, Green Bay is still the best team in the NFC North. And it's really not all that close. I mean, Green Bay is the best team here. And we'll see if Minnesota can challenge them from behind. Detroit isn't there. Chicago's nowhere near that. And uh, it's a boring answer, but it's still the truth. The Packers are the best team in the North. How about down south? Who is the best team in the NFC South? It's not Carolina. It's not Atlanta. They have too many problems and unanswered questions. Now, in my opinion, the New Orleans Saints got a lot better this offseason. A lot of people are hating on New Orleans and saying, ooh, like they're better than they think they are. I mean, the Saints weren't bad last year. They went 9-8. and eight. They barely missed the playoffs. Philadelphia got in with a 9-8 record. They were one game out. They were the eight seed, seven teams get into the playoffs. And on top of that, New Orleans almost made the playoffs last year. And keep in mind, they played four different quarterbacks last year. Their starting quarterback, Jameis Winston, only played seven games towards ACL. Like, <laughs> this team won with a rotating cast at quarterback. And by the way, in spite of that, they beat New Orleans two times last year, and they beat them twice in 2020 and 2019. I mean, the Saints were good last year, and I think they got even better this offseason. They drafted two key players, Chris Olave at receiver, tra uh, tackle Trevor Penning. They're getting a stud receiver, Michael Thomas, back. That's a whole new offense now. Michael Thomas and Chris Olave. Jameis Winston is back healthy. They've got a good offensive line. Running back Alvin Kamara is a stud and a star, can catch and run. They had a good defense. They just made even better by signing Tyran Matthew. I mean, the Saints were better than people realized last year, and now they're even better than that. I, I think the Saints are going to really challenge people in the NFL and surprise a lot of people now. Um, 
I hype up New Orleans. Now, unfortunately, here is me being totally honest. I still think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are the best team in the NFC South. But I think New Orleans is going to challenge them. New Orleans is right there, and they are pushing from behind. I can't wait for that. I can't wait to see how this plays out. Now, both teams have a new head coach. Uh, Both teams actually promoted their defensive coordinator internally to become head coach for the Saints. Dennis Allen became their top guy. Tampa promoted Todd Bowles. But Tampa, they're a better team than New Orleans. They're still loaded from their Super Bowl run. They've got Tom Brady at quarterback, Tom Brady or Jameis Winston. Who's better? Tom Brady. Whose offensive line is better? Tampa. I I don't trust their new rookie tackle yet. Uh, They've got a great offensive line. They've got a terrifying defensive line. Their front seven in general is incredible. Vita Vea, Devin White, Levante David, Shaq Barrett. I'm excited for their second-year pass rusher, Joe Tryon Shoinka was a rookie last year, really raw. He could take a big step forward in year two. Tampa is loaded at receiver. Here's a, so we everyone knows Tampa's got Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. Did you know they signed Russell Gage from Atlanta? Russell Gage is 26 years old. I just did a film analysis of Matt Ryan. I didn't mention Russell Gage at all, but he made a lot of really big catches last year for Matt Ryan and. They're also likely going to get Gronk back, maybe Julian Edelman. Like, who knows? But Tampa's really, really good. And they are better than New Orleans, but doesn't mean New Orleans couldn't steal that division from them. If things go right for New Orleans, they could win that division. And uh, so it's really close, but I still think Tampa is the team to beat in the NFC South. So far, um, it's been kind of boring. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's been, hey, the Packers, everyone knows the Packers are great. Everyone knows Tampa is great. Everyone knows that uh, the Rams are great. I think the AFC is even more interesting than the, than the NFC. That's why I started with the NFC. How about the East, though? Who is the best team in the NFC East? Well, it, it's not the New York Giants. We all know that. Uh, I actually like what the Giants are doing. I think they are headed in a good direction. They, they had a good draft. They invested in their offensive and defensive line. They have a coach I like, Brian Dable. But New, Orleans, uh, but New York, I almost said New Orleans, New York is a huge question mark at the quarterback position. Is Daniel Jones the guy? I think it's very possible. Tyrod Taylor could play quarterback for them a lot next year. Like, I don't know what to expect. Also, the thin at corner, the Giants have new leadership, and they're rebuilding. They are not the best team out east. So scratch the Giants off there. They're not the best team in this division. Then you have Washington, Dallas, and Philly. I think after the – so the AFC West is the most interesting – Crazy division in football. Kansas City, Denver, Vegas, L.A. It's going to be a bloodbath. Then right behind them, I think the NFC East is going to be really intense and really, really interesting. Because, so so Washington, for example. Washington has a new quarterback, Carson Wentz. He's really talented, but he needs to prove himself. He's got two stud receivers to throw to, Terry McLaurin and Jahan Dotson. They also have a better running game than people realize. Last year, the whole strategy in Washington was play good defense, control the ball. They've got a good tight end, Logan Thomas. They run the ball well. I think they're going to throw the ball better than last year. And the Washington Commanders have a pretty good defense. I mean, so I compare Washington to Washington's defense to a baseball pitcher where a good pitcher can have a great game, but they still need run support. If the team you're playing for isn't hitting the ball well and scoring runs, you can have a great game and still lose pitching. Their offense was bad last year in Washington. Their defense put out some good performances, and they just couldn't score enough points 
to help their defense out. Made their, it made things harder for the defense and made them look bad. But if Carson Wentz is a stud and plays the way I think he's capable of, then Washington is going to be pretty good. And by the way, Carson Wentz gets to play his old team Philadelphia two times next year. And that's a cool opportunity for him to get revenge on them for getting rid of him and trading him away to Indy. So I'm excited for Washington. Now, Dallas, the Dallas Cowboys are really good. They won the division last year. I think most people will assume that Dallas is the best team in this division. I I can't tell. Am I biased because I don't like them? Am I biased because, well, it's really hard to win that division two years in a row? It basically never happens. Dallas is good, though. They've got a a quarterback. Dak Prescott is really awesome. An offensive line that impressed me last year. Uh, They traded away Amari Cooper to Cleveland. They can't pay everyone. It's the problem with Dallas's roster, the way they're built. They just got too many big, expensive names. Uh, But they're still CeeDee Lamb and Michael Gallup at receiver. They've got two stud linebackers, Leighton Van Der Esch, and then a star linebacker, Micah Parsons, who was a rookie last year. One big question mark. I've got two... This one's a bit cheap. The next one's a real concern. The cheap question mark is, is kind of a, I'm not sure. Trevon Diggs is their young corner who had a breakout year last year. He led the NFL in interceptions, had 11. So on paper, Trevon Diggs looks incredible, but he got beat a ton last year. He's kind of a liability, actually, in the passing game. Weirdly enough, it's weird to say that, but he gets beat constantly. I wonder, is, is Trevon Diggs going to become a better, more complete corner this fall, or is he just going to remain a guy who's very risky, who takes a lot of chances, gets interceptions, but gives up a lot of big completions as well? Now, here's the actual big concerning thing in Dallas. I don't trust their head coach, Mike McCarthy. I don't trust him with in-game decision-making. I don't trust him. I just, I, I think he's kind of a, a lame duck. I'm not that impressed by him. Uh, and I just, I think, I think Mike McCarthy is a limiting factor in Dallas. I, I honestly do. Now, the Philadelphia Eagles, if you ask me, I think Philly is the best team in the NFC East. First of all, their offensive line played outstanding last year. They gave up 31 sacks, and here's context. They've got a quarterback, Jalen Hurts, who likes to hold on to the football for a long time and run around. To only give up 31 sacks says a lot about their football team. Like The offensive line in Philly was way better than anybody's talking about from last year. Hey, their defensive line is terrible. They probably have two starting their their backup defensive line is also could be starting on another football team. It's incredible. They made their secondary better by adding James Bradbury from New York. Um, I love Philly's coach, Nick Sirianni. He really, really impressed me and gained my respect last fall. He led Philly to the playoffs. I thought he was creative with the offense and built things well around Jalen Hurts. Um, I mean, frankly, Philly is even better than they were last fall. I think Jalen Hurts, their quarterback, is going to make – progress and get even better from last year they run the ball well um i like receiver Devonte smith they also traded for stud receiver aj brown it's going to be really close between washington and dallas and philadelphia uh i think it's neck and neck but today philly is the best team out east and i think philly is the team to beat in the nfc east this fall in 2022 okay uh, final topic of today, I put it at the end so you can skip it if you want to. We're going to talk about Formula One. Uh, we had a really fun race today. We just had the Monaco Grand Prix in Formula One. It was a lot of fun. Rain made it interesting. 
there was a long rain delay. I record every – anytime I watch a football game or watch a race or a basketball game or whatever, I record it and start about an hour late. That way, if there's a lot of commercial breaks, I can skip ahead. Or if there is a long rain delay, like in Formula One today, I can skip ahead. So that that approach to watching sports that way really paid off for me. I don't know how it felt for normal people watching, but I loved what I saw. I didn't have any long delays. I skipped ahead of those and – what I saw and what I loved was that Monaco is a, a track that needs a twist to make it interesting. It's hard to have overtakes. It really depends on um, qualifying. And wet conditions in Monaco gave us some really good, really interesting drama. So Sergio Perez got first. Carlos Sainz got second. Max Verstappen got third. Charles Leclerc got fourth. George Russell got fifth. Lando Norris got sixth. Fernando Alonso seventh. And... The last noteworthy guy, in my opinion, Lewis Hamilton, got eighth. The two biggest stories from Monaco are Checo, Sergio Perez, and Ferrari. Let's start with Checo. I was just praising Sergio Perez last week, saying he needs appreciation. Um, he's really underrated and underappreciated with how well he's doing for Red Bull. He got the appreciation this week. He won Monaco. Like, oh, my goodness. I'm so happy for the guy. I love seeing him win. And... Man, the final 10 minutes of this race, watching Checo Perez try to hold off Carlos Sainz behind him as his tires were graining. Oh, my gosh. It was tense. It was fun. That's brilliant, brilliant television. And I'm doing the British thing. Brilliant. Like, that's how I talk, by the way. Like, I, I stole, I think, Howdy from Texas is fun. I think Brilliant from the UK is awesome. Um, winning Monaco, though, is the kind of thing you dream about as a child. So... Watching Sergio Perez cry on the podium at Monaco as they played the Mexican national anthem. That's a beautiful moment. I'm sure for Checo, that's one of the highlights of his life. That's the kind of moment when you have a victory like that in life, you think of the people who helped get you there. You think of all the people you wish you could tell. Like I, When I have a victory like that in life, I think of my little brother who died, and I go, man, I wish I could tell him about this moment. I don't know if Sergio Perez has ever lost anyone close to him. I'm sure if he did, he thought of them in that moment and said, I wish I could have shared this with blah, blah, blah. I wish my grandpa could see me today. I wish whatever, whoever that person is for him. By the way, Sergio Perez is now the most successful, successful Mexican driver ever. Like that, the way he did it today, it's so cool. He's got more wins. It's awesome. I'm so happy for him. And I just think of where Checo started. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm just... I'm so glad Red Bull gave him a chance. Does anyone remember at the end of 2020 where he was at? He lost his seat at Racing Point. And, man, I remember thinking, like, this guy might be out of Formula 1. And that's so awful because he's clearly a talented driver. Red Bull gave him a chance. And, and man, they really have won a lot together. And this is – it's just huge, man. I'm glad to see Checo get the recognition he deserves, winning Monaco – He's one of the few ever to do it. And it's just so cool to me. I'm so happy for him. It's a massive highlight of his life. And uh, well done, Checo. Now, Ferrari. Ferrari started the day 1-2 uh, on the grid. And for Charles Leclerc to start the day on pole and then finish the race in fourth. That's a massive missed opportunity. But like that, oh my gosh, it's so bad. And for Ferrari, it's been a year of missed opportunities. Just... Time and time again, I feel like they have victory, and they squander it. 
And on lap 21, Charles Leclerc was told to pit. And then at the last moment, Ferrari tried to hold him back and said, oh, no, no, stay out. But it was too late. He was already in pit lane. And he lost his big lead. Like, how does that, how do you have a miscommunication like that? How does, how do these things happen over and over again to Ferrari? And at what point do we start asking the question, is this mismanagement by Mattia Bonotto, the Ferrari team principal? Ferrari built a good car. They, they probably should be leading Formula One, but they keep missing opportunities over and over again. There's still a long season ahead. It's not all been on the car. I mean, remember Carlos Sainz spun out once, and there's been problems here and there, but the reality is that Ferrari keeps shooting themselves in the foot one way or another. They keep finding ways to lose races, and it's like, man, how is this possible? They've clearly got a great car, and, and Ferrari just, it, it, just keep getting in their own way, and it's not good for them at all. Now, the fun of this race was the tension and the tire strategy. The wet weather really provided fun, you know, the conditions provided fun drama. Now, there was one moment that made me nervous. Uh, Lap 27, Mick Schumacher uh, wiped out, had a really bad crash. He walked away totally fine. But they didn't red flag the event immediately. And there was a moment where they waited until the car was recovered. Then they realized, hey, we got to put out a red flag to fix the barrier. But they were lifting this car out on a crane. There are also marshals like right along the track sweeping and helping out. And cars are going by on the track around this corner near them. And I don't know if I'm the only person who saw this and thought of this. Maybe I'm overdramatic. I I don't know. I I saw this, though, and I thought of uh, Jules Bianchi. And ever since that crash, I watched that video and I'm like, oh, and, and seeing marshals here are the factors. You see marshals along the track, a car suspended in the air while cars are driving by. It makes me nervous. I go, we have a history of this. This isn't cool. This isn't good. If one driver had brake failure or ran off the track, it was wet conditions, it would have been a really big mess. And I just wonder if I was the only person watching that recovery of the car going like, haven't we done this? This is really, I'm cringing a little bit. Like, I don't, Can we just red flag it? I know we're behind. I know we're way behind schedule, but am I the only one who... Let me know if you're the only... If I'm the only person watching this who thought of that crash and was like, ooh, are we sure we don't want to red flag it? I don't know. Uh, I also thought Esteban Alcon got an unfair penalty. He was ahead in a corner. Lewis Hamilton was being super aggressive behind him, trying to make a move inside, which wasn't really there. They made contact. Esteban Alcon got a five-second penalty, it seemed like, how do I, seemed like bull shark to me. We'll say bull shark. Um, that's a thing. They have them in Hawaii. Um, it looked like good defensive driving. The way the whole time, it, it was actually fun and tense. You saw Lewis Hamilton chasing down Akon and, you know, Akon just taking up as much of the track as he could, not letting Lewis Hamilton pass. And I think Lewis Hamilton kind of annoys me a little bit where he whines when people race him really hard. But then he drives like a total a-hole. It's hypocrisy to me. I just, I really don't like, there's a, a bit of Lewis Hamilton that is a bit of a complainer in him where things don't go his way and he kind of pouts and it must, it must be unfairness. It must be BS. It's like, I don't know that Esteban Ocon did anything wrong there and I didn't like seeing him get a penalty at all. It wasn't cool to me. Uh, now, George Russell got another top five finish and we're at the point now, we're seven races in 
the points don't lie. Like, scoreboard, I'm sorry, George Russell is the best driver at Mercedes. George Russell has 84 points. Lewis has 50. And George is massively outperforming Lewis Hamilton. And you're just like, without... So, in previous years, Lewis Hamilton had a team behind him. He had a lesser driver in the number two spot, Valtteri Botas. And any time Botas was challenging Lewis or any time there was anything going on, Mercedes would tell... Valtteri Botas to back off, and they would not allow Botas to outperform Lewis Hamilton. I don't know if that was even possible, but if it was, we would have never found out because they had the team vehemently supporting Lewis and not allowing anyone to challenge him. Well, the car isn't as good, and George Russell is, is just outperforming Lewis week in and week out. We're seven races in now. It's a big enough sample size to me where I'm like, I think he's the best driver at Mercedes. I, I'm not trying to jump the gun. I, I'm not... I know I've been critical of Lewis at times. I, I actually love the guy. But I think people think I don't like him. I just I try to play it you know, shoot straight and be honest. Um, and right now, George Russell's the best driver at Mercedes. Now here are the drivers' standings after Monaco. In first place, you got Max Verstappen with 125 points. In second place, still you got Charles Leclerc with 116 points. I thought this was the race where they were going to flip flop. I mean, I really felt like Max started the race in fourth. And that's where Charles Leclerc started the race in first. Leclerc ended in fourth, getting fewer points than Max Verstappen. That should have never happened. So Max Verstappen's in first right now with the driver's standings, 125 points. Charles Leclerc in second with 116 points. Then you got Sergio Perez in third with 110 points. George Russell in fourth with 84 points. In fifth, you got Carlos Sainz with 83 points. And in sixth, Lewis Hamilton has 50 points. In the driver's standings, or the constructor, sorry, in the team standings, or the constructor's standings, Red Bull remained in first with 235 points. Ferrari is in second with 195, 199 points. I go back to, like, Ferrari had a 1-2 start. They had an opportunity here to get all the points today and make a big move and, and make a jump towards Red Bull. And instead, Red Bull got more points today than Ferrari. That's a huge victory for Red Bull and a huge loss for Ferrari. In third, Mercedes is kind of all alone. They've got 134 points. Then a big gap between Mercedes and fourth with McLaren, who has 59 points. All around, I thought it was, all I care about really is entertainment. And we got a really entertaining race weekend in Monaco. Uh, one of the better Monaco races in a while. There, all, there has to be a twist at Monaco. If there's not rain or something that happens, it's actually not a very interesting race. It's just kind of some prestige and a weird little tiny country and a very beautiful location. Um, but the rain and wet conditions made it really, really exciting, really, really interesting this weekend, and especially you know Sunday with the race. Uh, the next race is in two weeks, June 12th. You've got uh, – it's at Baku, Azerbaijan. So that will be interesting and exciting, and uh, I hope you enjoyed Monaco as much as I did. Checo Perez, man, holy crap. I loved watching him win. I was so happy. Um, does anyone not like Sergio Perez? He's the most likable driver out there. I just really, really love the guy. I mean, there's a lot of likable drivers. It's pretty cool to see. Like, you watch Max talking to Carlos Sainz and Sergio Perez after the race. There's really no animosity. It's a lot of friendly people out on the grid. Um, I love Carlos Sainz, too, man. Like, there's a lot of people out there to love in Formula One. A lot of people to root for and cheer for. I, I really enjoy it. Um, and I hope you enjoyed Monaco as much as I did. Guys, that is all I have. Thank you so much for tuning in. I love you. I appreciate you. Uh, we'll see. This might be the last episode I ever record in this room. Maybe not. 
it depends on how much work I get done tonight. I love you. I appreciate you. Ba-dum-bum. Bam. We are done.